You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible's all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find the campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. If you're a parent, search for our new Forest Hill Parenting Podcast and subscribe to get new content tailored just for you. You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible's all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find the campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. If you're a parent, search for our new Forest Hill Parent Podcast and subscribe to get new content tailored just for you. Hi, Forest Hill. I'm Josh with Mission India. Uh, Mission India is one of your global ministry partners, and uh, we work, obviously, in the land of India. Uh, We've been working together um, in partnership since about 2012, uh, starting with uh, a remarkable Christmas Eve offering that you took for our organization, and uh, we've been uh, doing work in India together ever since. This past year, we trained 40 church planners in uh, central India, kind of uh, what we would call the Hindu heartland, a very difficult place to do ministry work, a place where persecution against Christians is high, where uh, there are many unreached people in unreached communities. Those 40 people have planted 62 churches, so we're celebrating that today, uh, and we're grateful for the role that you've played in making that happen. Uh, And and this is just a small slice of the partnership and the impact that we've had together over the last five or six years. Uh, More than 477 people have been trained And those people have planted just under a thousand churches. And and the kingdom impact of this work and of this partnership is over 19,000 people coming to know Christ uh, and and receiving the gospel and accepting Jesus uh, for the first time uh, because of that work. So thank you for that work. We are grateful for you. Uh, We love this church. We love our partnership. Uh, We're asking God to bless you and to bless the work you do in India and, and the work that you do all around the world. Thank you very much. Folks, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you understood. 19,000 people have come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the work that you have contributed towards. And so we want you to know every single week, your financial contributions, <laughs> it helps us to make an eternal difference in the lives of people all over the world. So would you please, please again praise God for his faithfulness as I thank you for also your faithfulness as well. That's, that's incredible. Well, thanks for coming, being part of Forest Hill for our worship as we begin a brand new series. Forest Hill Church, for those of you that may not know, is one church in six different locations. But we're walking and beginning a, a new series called Vivid. And I'd like to ask, I brought my good friend, one of our elders, uh, Jim Damron, to actually read the scripture as well as to pray as we begin this. And so in the honor of reading God's words as we dive right into it, let me invite you to stand to your feet. As we take a look at the scripture from Matthew chapter 5 as Jim reads. This is the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 9. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, it is a privilege 
that we can be considered your children. Lord, it's an honor to have your words at our fingertips so that we can meditate and study your truth. I think there's many of us who realize that your truth is not only impactful and influential, but it needs to be transform our hearts and it needs to transform our minds and especially transform our lives. So we ask that you be present here today. Reveal yourself through Jonathan and his words, through your word, and let us be those people that you created us to be. Let our life be fulfilled to its fullest and let your light shine through us as we live our lives and witness to those who need to hear your word and your truth the most. It's only in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, by way of kind of setting up this series, Frank L. Baum's classic story, The Wizard of Oz, hit the movie theaters in 1939. Amazingly, it really didn't do well in the box office in 1939, but it went on in television syndication by the Library of Congress to be named the most watched television movie of all time as well as America's greatest, best-loved, homegrown fairy tale. And it was known for several different things, for its characters, for its scenery, for the acting, for the storyline, but also for Technicolor, right? Technicolor, because Technicolor had its infancy in the early 1900s, really kind of matured, so that by 1939, in Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, Technicolor had hit the theaters, and it was a major, vivid, beautiful contrast. In this particular story, The Wizard of Oz, they did it deliberately where Kansas is kind of seen in black and white, actually what's called sepia tones, something that's kind of dull, making Kansas look really dull and drab because they're going to set up an incredible, vivid contrast to the wonderful world of Oz. Remember the scene, the Wizard of Oz, the main character, her name is Dorothy, and her little dog, you've all watched the show, and you remember that the tornado kind of hit her home, it's picked up her home, and it's spinning like crazy, and she's in the bedroom watching like farm implements go by, and relatives go by, and also Miss Almira Gulch who was on her bicycle and gets transformed into the, into the Wicked Witch of the West on her broom. And then, well, here's what actually happens. Take a look at the series and look, and look at the contrast, the vivid contrast between dull Kansas and the wonderful world of Oz. Judy Garland's famous line, because what she is looking at doesn't look like Kansas at all. A vivid contrast. And I wonder that there is a parallel in the sense of how we kind of look at life, that there is this drab, dull Kansas aspect to our life or the lives that we live in comparison to the vivid lives other people seem to live who seem to have the material resources, opportunities to go and do certain kinds of things. And some of us are on the side saying, boy, I wish I could have that kind of life only to realize that there are people that are looking at our life saying the same thing, that they wish that they could have the same kind of life as ours too, especially in the pursuit of what the fulfilled life is that many people would say is part of the American dream, and yet you and I also know that simply having money, power, opportunity, those kinds of things, we know people who've done that, had that, and still end up empty, not experiencing or feeling as if the life is satisfied and fulfilled. I went across the Internet, and I took a look at some, a lot of different ways that people try to define what the fulfilled life looks like. I came across the fact that there was a study done, a 75-year-long study done, with 268 male graduates of Harvard to help to identify what in their life would they determine as the elements of what contributes to a successful, a fulfilling life. They followed these guys, the class of 38 and 40, 38 to 40, for 
75 years. And the results of the study were fascinating. What these men said contributed to a successful and fulfilling life. Number one, they came to the conclusion that it's, it's about way more than money and power. We kind of know that. But also that there needs to be a significant connection to your work, a meaningful connection to your work. Also, they determined that what helps to make you happier is that the challenges you, that you go through and the lessons that you learn in persevering can also help to make your life happier. But by and large, the number one factor that helps to contribute to a fulfilling life in this study was that it really is all about love. And then having significant, supportive Loving relationships with people was voted the number one factor of how to be able to have a fulfilling life. I went through, and it was interesting, about the thread that I saw in all of culture's versions of what it takes to live fulfillment in life. And I came across this one particular statement, this one particular poem, Keys and Tips to a Fulfilling Life, is what it says. Life is a gift, I accept it. Life is an adventure, I dare it. Life is a mystery, I'm unfolding it. Life is a puzzle, I'm solving it. Life is a game, I play it. Life can be a struggle, I'm facing it. Life is beauty, I praise it. Life is an opportunity, I took it. Life is my mission, I'm fulfilling it. And I realize that in something like that, there is a certain aspect where we have to take some responsibility in moving forward with our life. But there was something that I found almost entirely through all the things that I read from culture, there's a missing element in all of what they said. What's the... What's the thread in that statement? It's all about I. In all the things that I read, I never saw God anywhere in it. God was nowhere a part of the philosophy of how to live life in a fulfilling way. As a matter of fact, it's almost as if that God is not really, even though he's a source, he is not a reference point for how we live lives with great quality. He's not a part of it at all. And that's the thing I guess I want to make sure that it's understood as we go through the series. Folks, here's a, here's a picture. Here's a reality. That the omnipotent creator of the universe, the eternal, righteous, holy, and loving God, created humanity to have imprinted on each person an aspect of his nature, his image on us. We are image bearers of God, and that God, in creating us, didn't do that by accident. Regardless of how you came into the world, every single person has been created with eternal value from the nature of God. You hear today, hearing my voice, you are not on this earth by accident. You came equipped with a purpose tied to the nature of God. You are valuable. You are precious. You are a prize to God, and you do have a purpose, which means this. Living life to the fullest seems to indicate that we first need to find out from God what our purpose is. It's been said that if you ever want to know the purpose of a thing, don't ask the thing. Go back to the creator. Go back to the purpose because like those men found out, that success in life is not about what you have or what you accomplish, but more about what you become. So God comes to us in a similar way that Mufasa comes to Simba in The Lion King after Mufasa died and, and Simba's struggling with his identity and Simba, Mufasa comes to him out of the cloud. Remember what he says to his son? Simba, you are more than what you have become. <laughs> thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thank you. I'd like to thank the Academy for... Well, you are more than what you have. Sometimes we focus only on the stuff rather than realizing that God's always working on the who we are more than the what we have. King Jesus comes to us to bring us and give us a different perspective, a kingdom perspective. 
Jesus is the one who said, I came that you may have life. And have it how? More abundantly. The word there is like super abundance. Over and over. More than enough. I came that you would have the God life. The fullness of life. So, folks, it makes perfect sense that if Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came that we may know and experience a fulfillment, a fullness of life. And being able to spend time in his presence, listening to him, getting from him the truth we need is important for us to be able to move forward to experience life as it was meant to be. And Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount who qualifies for this kind of life, what that life is like. And he summarizes it in one word, blessed. The fulfilling life, the God life, blessed. And that word blessed is not simply just about fortunate or being happy. That's what the Greek word kind of means, but it goes even further than that. That a person who is blessed... It speaks of a kingdom citizen who has the kingdom of God within them. A person whose life and state is marked by being filled with the fullness of God. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit that they become a house and a conduit for the life, the fullness of divine life in and through them on behalf of Christ in a way that blesses not only their life, but blesses the world that's around them. Jesus says those are the people who are blessed are those who house and hold and share the God life that comes to them. The people that qualify, it's, it's really interesting. You'd not, you'd not think that who Jesus mentions would be those who get it. But he said those who are blessed, happy, full of the life of God are those who are poor in spirit. Those who come before God recognizing that they have nothing. They know that they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God except their hunger. And Jesus says to those people, they're blessed because the kingdom of heaven is open to those kinds of people who are spiritually impoverished. Those who mourn. Those who know their condition and they grieve penitently, humbly, authentically over their condition. Jesus says those are the blessed ones. Because those are the ones who will be comforted, not with comfort from the earth, but with a divine comfort. Those who are meek, gentle, ready to receive from God whatever grace he may give to them. Jesus says, to those people, they'll inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst deep in their souls for righteousness. Rather than hungering for the stuff of the world, but those who hunger for the things of the kingdom of God, Jesus assures that those people will be filled. Those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart. That those are the blessed ones. And the idea there is that as we move forward in this series to understand that the context of what we need from Christ to experience fulfillment, here's the context. Here's the kind of a fil the fulfillment filter I want you to have. Because there's nothing better than living life filled with the fullness of God in you. So keep this in mind, that this series is going to deal with the context of God's authority. We're going to talk to you about God's truth from God's perspective of how our life was meant to be and how we have a divine purpose already attached. It's going to be about your identity as image bearers of God, that we make sure that we live under his authority, but also becoming everything that we were originally intended to be. But it's also within the context of community. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ was not speaking to a collection of individuals who were taking notes on self-help tips. No, it's not simply about what did you get, but what did we get and how do we live this thing together. In other words, the fulfillment uh, in life is not something that is done with you in isolation, but with us as a part of a community. We don't do this alone with God and with each other. But also that there's an eternal perspective. There's an eternal perspective tied to how we live a fulfilled life. A lot of people right now would say, well, yeah, I'm experiencing fulfillment, I'm satisfied, I'm happy. But if 
in the face of God in eternity. God would have said to a person, no, you didn't achieve what I had purposed for you. Then, folks, then maybe we ought to question whether or not we're experiencing fulfillment now. But the idea is, is that if we can stand before God in eternity and God would say to us, well done. You've accomplished what I had purposed for you. That no matter what our circumstances are, and that's the issue about those who are blessed, they are living their life with the fullness of God regardless of the outside circumstances because they are secured to the life of God inside. Understand that that is always going to be laced with the grace and the love of God. A love of God that's not simply just sentimental. It's not simply just about how God feels about you, but it's tied to God's commitment to do whatever is necessary to let you in on the beauty and the vividness of his life. So we need a perspective. We need a vivid perspective of what it means to have the fulfillment of life through Christ. Christ would inspire the Apostle Paul to write this in Romans chapter 8. Verse 37, he says this, In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that passage that we just read, it seems to indicate that there are a number of forces that are seeking to separate us from the love of Christ. There are a number of forces that can create barriers to the fulfilled life, like death and life and angels, the past, the present, things in the future. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to deal with what are the barriers in the past, what are the barriers in the present, what are the barriers in the future that prevent us from living life to the full. Today, we're going to deal with the barriers of the past, particularly the wrongs done by us and the wrongs done to us. The wrongs done by us to others or to God and the wrongs that have been done to us. The hurts that we've taken on because of other, other people. Every single person in this room, you all know and have, are completely intimately acquainted with the carnage of wrong actions, thoughts, and words that you've done or that have been done to you. In every dimension of our life, right? that we are aware of the words that have been spoken from us or to us, the bullying, gossip, slander, the lies, the ridicule, the verbal dehumanization that we've experienced or expressed and how it shreds the human soul. You and I are familiar with actions but have been detrimental, even dangerous. Betrayal. Cheat. Lies. Steal. Violence. Things that were done. Disobedience. Alienation of God. Addictions. Materialism. Things we go after rather than him. The ways that people have deliberately let us down rejecting us or that we've rejected somebody else. The thought patterns. The dangerous thought patterns. That through the 
maze in the fog of depression, suicide, worthlessness, envy, jealousy. Thoughts of God that are not based on truth. Every single one of us can get to the place where those things become barriers for us being able to move forward to experience the fulfillment of life. And we, we get from culture ways of being able to deal with those things, how culture deals with that. Because ultimately the, the effect of those kinds of things for the things that we do to others or we've done to God, if it's not resolved properly, guilt and shame. Right? Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame is like this, this coat of tar, pitch tar that's stuck to us and we can't get off of us. And we walk around heavy with the burden of what, has, what we've done, what we've, what, how we've committed these crimes that have hurt other people. We, and we just feel as if there is no way out. It's hopeless because of how bad and wrong of a failure we are. Or maybe we've experienced when people have hurt us, the result of that can be bitterness and resentment. We've been hurt so deeply that we then have this prison of defensiveness. And the way that sometimes our culture goes around dealing with those things, if it's about guilt and shame, sometimes it's deciding that we are going to do whatever it takes to escape those feelings, to dull our emotions, to forget that I've done wrong. And so we find ourselves turning to substances to fill our lives with those other kinds of controls that help us to lose ourselves in alcohol, drugs, or to pursue hedonism in sex just to forget, to escape. Or maybe it's the other way around. Because of how deeply we feel about the things we've done wrong, that we believe that we need to punish ourselves. We deny ourselves the honest, simple joys and pleasures of life, but sometimes that becomes actually self-destructive because of how wrong we are. Or we engage in hyper-religious activity. I've done that. Because we're so bad, we've done so wrong, that we're going to do way, way good religious things. Like we're going to read the Bible three times in a day. We're going to pray for hours and fast, longer than Jesus did, right? That whatever the church wants, we're going to do because I'm trying to undo the wrong that I've done by trying to do more good. Maybe on the other hand, for bitterness and resentment because of what people have done, we're not just simply nursing grudges, we're engorging grudges. And all of a sudden, we walk around, grudge is now our roommate. Grudge is now our companion. This bitterness and resentment, and we have this wall. We become prickly so that even people that really do honestly love us, that they can't get near to us because we believe that we're going to be hurt again. We don't trust anybody. We've got our ballistic missiles ready to attack anybody who threatens us because we've been hurt so bad, I will not be hurt again. And the cause and effect of that kind of, I mean, it's, it comes from our brokenness, no doubt about that, all of it. It comes from our brokenness because of maybe what, what's happened in our past, dysfunctional patterns of the past. We've been hurt, and so we hurt people. We walk around with these defensive mechanisms. But it produces isolation. It produces something that we're, we actually, even though we don't even realize we're pushing people away, even God, we end up with some dangerous thoughts about God that not even God could overcome the barrier of the things that I've done or the things that have been done to me because we spend more time focusing on what we or others have done. It's a prison because, folks, people like that, not only can they not live a fulfilling life, they're barely living as it is. And here's where the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ shows up with this one powerful word that deals with the past, and that word is forgiveness. Here's a picture. 
that this God who has created us for our purpose knows full well mankind has failed, that mankind has rejected him. And this God who is righteous and holy, who said that the wages of sin is death, the gavel has already come down and mankind has already been rendered guilty before God of rebellion against him. That hurts that either have been done to him or others are ultimately sins against God that have offended him. And though God in his holiness and righteousness has said mankind is guilty and therefore the sentence is separation, God's infinite love will not allow man to be consigned to that fate without hope. And so God, in his love and mercy, he comes to us because we can't get to him. He comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ who lives a perfect life modeling how our life should be and can be lived before God but that Jesus Christ intentionally, willingly, lovingly offers his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for the crimes that have been committed against the holiness of God. And that when Jesus dies on that cross, he receives divine justice for our wrong, that we can receive divine grace for the things we've done. Amen. Amen for that. So let me, let me make sure you understand that word forgiveness, because sometimes we think that forgiveness is like remorse or forgiveness is like a feeling. It's not. The true understanding of forgiveness, for, as far as the scripture is concerned, is how you set a person free. You liberate a person from the wrongs that are done. To forgive somebody means that you separate a person from the thing that they did so they are no longer looked through the filter of the wrong. That you set them free. That their sin on their account is blotted out. And they are viewed differently through the lens of grace rather than through the lens of failure. That's what God does to us that sets us free to be loved and to love as well. That kind of forgiveness, folks, it always costs. It costs. And it starts with what God did on the cross through Jesus Christ for us where he pays our debt, the blood of Jesus washing us clean so that God no longer looks at us through the filter of our sin, but through the righteousness of his grace. So that now we are set free to live our lives differently in response to his goodness, to his faithfulness, and to cause us then to live differently in the way that we respond to other people as well. That's what it means to be forgiven, to be set free. But here's the thing, it does come with a challenge. <laughs> it does come with a challenge. Receiving the forgiveness of God. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. In what we know is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says that the model prayer is, forgive us, praying to God, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtor. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he goes on to say, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, your sins, your offenses. Jesus always ties our being forgiven to our being forgivers. Understand that Jesus is not saying that if you're going to be forgiven by God, you've got to first for, for, forgive others. No, everything starts off with his grace to us. But it's almost as Jesus is saying this. If you refuse to give grace to others, then you really haven't received my grace for you. If, you've not, if you close your heart 
to the, the wrongs that people have done and you continue to treat them as villains and culprits, then you really haven't come in contact with my love for you and my grace. And we can't be in fellowship together as long as you continue to walk with bitterness and resentment to those who have hurt you. Those people who have hurt you, they hurt you in a way that doesn't anywhere near come close to what you've done to God and I've forgiven you for. Therefore, being forgiven also means that we must be forgivers. Everything referenced by the grace of God to us. He tells this parable in, in Matthew chapter 18 about the unmerciful servant. And servant number one, who has this incalculable billion-dollar debt to a master, and the master basically says, time to pay up. I need my money back. And the servant says, I don't have it. And the master says, well, then you're going to prison, and we're going to make you work it off until every penny is paid. And the servant freaks out. And he's saying, please have mercy. There's no way I can pay that debt. I, I, I would die several times over to pay that debt back. And the master does not say, well, you know something? I'll cut the debt in half. I'll give you more time. No, the master says, then you know something? The debt is off. He has forgiven that man of everything so that the slate, his register balance, says actually zero. You don't owe me anything. And by the way, when the master forgives that kind of debt, who pays? The master does. The master basically says, I'll cover the loss. The servant walks out probably praising God after he's thank, kissing him on his feet. Thinking, thank you. I, he's outside just praising God. I'm free. I can't believe. And he looks and sees a guy that owes him five bucks. And he says, I need my money. I need my money. I'm never going to get in a situation like that again. I'm going to need my money. Goes to this guy and says, you, so this is servant number two. Says, servant number two, you owe me five bucks. And the guy says, I don't have it. I can't pay. He says, well, you're going to prison. And we're going to make sure you work it off until you give me every penny. And the guy says, please have mercy. And servant number, servant number one says, no, and sends him to prison. Meanwhile, the master hears about that and has servant number one come back and says to servant number one, um, were you not the same guy that was in front of me with a billion-dollar debt and you shook down a person for five? Here's the deal. Debt's back on. Now you're going to prison, and you're going to pay. You're going to stay there until every penny of that is paid off. And here's what Jesus says in verse 35 of 18. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Yikes. That's a challenge. Jesus is saying, the degree to which you have been forgiven by me, you must also forgive others. Otherwise, we can't be in fellowship, and you will not live your life with the blessing of grace in it as long as you close your heart to share that grace with somebody else. And that's a painful, difficult thing for us to make sure that we use the measure on others that we want God to use on us. I forgive you, but I want nothing to do to you. Can you imagine what life would be like if God forgave us the way we forgive other people? I love you, but I'll never forget. That's not a good place to be. And so Christ encourages us to realize that what he says to us is not a suggestion. It's a command because it's something we probably don't want to do. And we have to be honest about that. God, what they did, forgiveness, I don't want to. But because you did for me, help me. Help me to respond in the way that you've responded in my life. And so being able to move forward from failures to fulfillment, here are a couple of things to think about. Whether it's things that we have done and the guilt and shame or things done to us and the bitterness and resentment, this process is pretty much the same thing. Number one, the difficulty, especially if you're stuck, dealing with the pain of what others have done or what you've done to God and to others. Number one, in your approach to God, 
before you say anything, this is what I, this is what I have to do. <laughs> Affirm what God has already done for you through Jesus Christ. For Jonathan, i got to visualize the cross. i got to remember before, because if, listen, if you focus only on what they have done or you've done, forgiveness ain't coming. Mercy and grace ain't coming. Not when you focus on what they've done, but when you focus on what God has done, changes the story. So before you say anything, you come before God, focus and affirm the grace you have received by God through Jesus' sacrifice. Start there. Then number two, I'd say this, then admit, confess your sin, confess your crimes that you've done to God or others. God, I confess, I did this. I said this to her. I reacted this particular way. I'm wrong before you and to them. I'm wrong. I did this wrong. I, I acknowledge what you've done, what, they, what I've done. Or admit to God what they've done. Go before God and say, God, I, I'm hurt by what they said to me. I'm hurt by what they did to me. Here's what it is, and here's the damage it's doing in my life. Go before God with all of that. Tell him. He knows, but you need to acknowledge that before him. God, I admit, I acknowledge, because I think many times God will say, yep, they sure did that to you. Affirm and then admit, acknowledge it. But then number three, I'd say this. Accept his forgiveness for your crimes. Accept his forgiveness for your crimes. And by the way, so when you say, dear God, please forgive me, amen. Don't get to the amen too quickly. Take time to take in, to hear God say to you through Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive him, her. I forgive you. The debt has already been paid. Hear me? The debt has already been paid. Receive his forgiveness. And here's how you know that you've received the forgiveness, at least one way, at least one way that you know you've received in that moment. Two words. Two words. Thank you. If you leave with something like, okay, God, I'll try harder. No. After you have received his forgiveness, there should be gratitude. Thank you. And then number four, ask for help. Ask for help. Dear God, help. give me your grace and strength to be able to continue to receive this. Help me, God, to repent. Help me, God, to leave aside those things that I've done or said. Help me to be different. Because, folks, you cannot change in your own power. It's your power that got you in the problem in the first place. You need divine spirit help. And that comes to the person who is blessed. The person who is grieving their situation. The person who knows that they're poor in spirit. That that kind of grace to live beyond and above your failures comes to those who ask. Say, God, I need your help. And I'm going to depend upon your strength and your life in me. Ask for the help. You may need, God, give me the strength and the grace to be able to actually approach the person that I hurt and acknowledge what I did to them. But you may need to go to somebody and say, listen, I, I know I blew you up. I know I hurt you, and I'm sorry. I've come to let you know that I know that I've done this wrong to you. Or on the other side of it, dear God, help me to forgive. I, God, quite frankly, I don't want to. What they've done to me, I want them to burn. But because you give me this grace, then, Lord Jesus, give me the strength to forgive them. Not necessarily that you go to them right away, but that you forgive them. You release them from the burden of what you, they have done because it's only keeping you in prison. But to forgive them. And then to be very 
cautious about how you approach them to tell them that they're forgiven. It's always kind of a weird thing. My daughter, I love my daughter. She's wonderful. But quite frankly, she doesn't understand me sometimes. She misinterprets my affection, my authority. And there are times where I ask my kids to do something, and they say, well, why, Dad? And, you know, the phrase that I have around my house, I've probably told you this before, that my response is, yours is not to question why. Yours is just to do or die. Your only goal is to comply. When I say jump, you say how high. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that doesn't go over really well. And so she responds that in, in, with disrespect and disobedience and a lack of submission, and I am filled with righteous indignation. And I walk away, I'm like, oh, my daughter, she's just not responding to me properly. But I calm myself down because I'm a benevolent dictator. <laughs> and I go to my daughter in my right moment, I say, my sweetheart, Christine, I forgive you. Yeah, that's her response. She's like, whatever. I told her about this last night. She said, yep, that's exactly what I, that's exactly what I do. Because it's, it's, all, it's all in fun and jest. But quite frankly, have you, have you ever had a person come up to you out of the blue, out of the blue, and just say to you, hey, what you did to me, I just want you to know I forgive you. I've had that happen to me a couple of times. I'm like, number one, I don't know what you're talking about. Number two, I don't think I need it because I'm not sure that I, I did anything wrong. Be very cautious about how you go to people and tell, tell them, I forgive you. Because sometimes that's not really for them, it's for you. But folks, if there's somebody that has hurt you, and you walked and walking around in guilt and shame because of what they've done, and they've come to you and they say, I just want you, I want you to know I'm sorry, then at that particular point, by the grace of God, please say to them, hey, hey, because of what Christ has done for me, I release you from the debt of what you've done. I forgive you. Now, folks, I know that in a room like this with this many folks in it and those who are listening online, I know that there are some very complicated situations, difficult situations that people are like, okay, but this person has done this to me. Am I supposed to? I would say this. Let us help you with that. There are certain situations that it's a case-by-case -case kind of a situation. As pastors and as counselors, let us help you to know exactly how to take those steps in those difficult situations. Sometimes when people hear those kinds of things, especially if they are hurtful people, abusers, they're like, well, hey, Jesus says you should forgive me. So therefore, I would say this. Do not let a hurtful person define God's grace for you. Get some help. We want to be able to help you so that we make sure that you live free to receive and experience God's grace. We want to be able to do that. But ultimately, it's about being able to move forward, no longer chained to the past. Paul the Apostle would say this in Philippians chapter 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I love this, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to, lie, to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what's behind, the past, the barriers, moving forward. I'm not an avid country music fan, but I do have one of my favorite songs from the philosopher Travis Tritt. <laughs> song several years ago is called No More Looking Over My Shoulder, and the second verse of that song says this. I could chill a room with reasons why I would not give forgiveness to the people who had selfishly left me a wounded soul. I kept dragging around those memories like a ball and chain behind me, wondering why my troubles followed me wherever I would go. Then one night, 
Sick and tired of being sick and tired, I realized forgiveness was the only open road. I swear I heard those shackles snap. The moment that I took that path, I never have one time looked back since the morning I arose, singing, no more looking over my shoulder, no more hanging on to the past, no more filling up my tomorrows with yesterday's sorrows, no more looking over my shoulder. That's a good song. That's a very good song. with a great truth and a great message. Hey, are you stuck because of what you've done or what others have done to you? Go to God with his eternal grace through Jesus Christ. Receive the power to be forgiven and to be forgiving so that you are no longer chained and you're able to move forward to live the fulfilled life. The fulfilled life is a person who lives forgiven and forgiving.